Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. Welcome to our December monthly livestream. Go ahead and start getting questions in the chat window for our moderators now so we can get right to them, and as usual, please try to keep those pretty clear and legible to give them an easier time relaying them to me. Also, as usual, we won't be able to get to every question today, so if yours doesn't get covered, feel free to post it into the comments on the video after we're done and I'll swing back by over the next day or so to get those answered, and in case I forget doing the show, let me wish everyone a Happy New Year! Good afternoon everyone and welcome to our live stream. We'll get started with questions in just a moment so go ahead and start putting those in the chat window now. Um, we probably will go a little bit shorter today than normal just because I got a bit of a head cold and I might start getting a little bit too clogged up to talk, so. Um, go ahead and start with questions. One of the first ones we had was, in the coming war between uh, genetically engineered superhumans and uh, killer artificial intelligences, who would I put my money on? And the uh, interesting thing about that is because we've had that come forth in like cyborgs and, um, uh, you know, genetically engineered supermen. There's only so much you can probably do with biology, especially keeping to basically human or, you know, Earth-based biology versus a machine. You know, probably going to lose that machine. I think so. Cyborgs would generally tend to win. Uh, Although I would note that probably if you're a cyborg, you don't mind getting genetic enhancements too, so you're probably getting a double dish there. Okay. Um, Alpha Bravo Tech asks, what do you think the world population will look like in the year 3000 and why? Well, quadrupled in the last century, but let's say it would only double uh, in the next centuries and, and after that. That would be 10 doublings, and that would be uh, 2 to the 10th, 1,024. So theoretically, the population, if it's growing at a fairly reasonable rate, a little bit more modestly than last century, would be about 7 trillion. And we do actually have an episode coming up on that. Uh, what if the Earth had a trillion people on it, or how could the Earth have a trillion people on it? And we'll talk about that there, but uh, to be honest, I would not expect the population to be quite that high on on this planet at that time. Um, <clears throat> but that depends so much on what kind of technology you have. For instance, uh, our population growth rate started to dip uh, in the latter part of the 20th and early 24th century, the growth rate, uh, in, especially in developed countries, because we had access to birth control technology and because people were generally starting careers later, uh, men and women alike. So even though most folks would still like to have a family, they tend to start a bit later and say that's a technology that affects the population rate probably a lot more than the major cultural thing. In fact, the culture will often follow the technology. If we had um, technologies that increase the period that you're fertile for, and in fact, they actually have been doing a lot of advanced that with women in the last decade, uh, suddenly that changes. You could start a career at age 40 and still have a full family. And if you got good life extension technology with that, you might look like you're 20 still when you're a century old. In a case like that, I would imagine you'd have quite a population boom. Uh, though it'd probably be easier to get people to agree to wait if there was actually a, like a resource limitation. So, you know, you know you can have kids eventually, so if the war needs some time to build up infrastructure, then I think people might be a little bit more relaxed about uh, waiting, especially if we had better birth control technology too. So it's kind of hard to guess on population numbers. It could... You could fill a Dyson sphere up by the year 4000 AD with relatively low growth rates, and that's a billion times our current population, not a thousand. 
Joshua Moore asks, personal question, what's your reading list looking like for 2020? Um, <clears throat> well, very high on my reading list is actually uh, Heaven's River by uh, Dennis E. Taylor. I don't know when that's scheduled to come out, but I got to be one of the alpha readers on it, so that was a lot of fun. Uh, Dennis E. Taylor, if you didn't know, a um, friend of mine who does the uh, Barbivore series, uh, We Are Legion, uh, and um, that's just a very great book series, especially if you're a big sci-fi fan, because there's so many callbacks and references to uh, popular science fiction there. Um I think Brandon Sanderson's putting out another book this year uh, that I was in the Cosmere series I'm hoping to read. He's my favorite fantasy author. And uh, you know, I keep my fingers crossed we see something else from Alistair Reynolds this year. But uh, also some novels in the Siege of Terror series from 40K I'm hoping to get a chance to read. So, But as that, it's always on whim. Oh, and I wanted to catch up on C.S. Lewis a bit. Uh, he has a sci-fi trilogy. I haven't read it yet, uh, but my fiancé gave it to me as a Christmas gift. Um, I can't remember what the rest of the series is called, but the first book is um, Out of the Silent Planet, and I'm looking forward to reading that next week or two. Uh, let's see. Oh, heads up, uh, Hi Cody and Hi Hydraulic Press, uh, two shows. I'm sure you guys know Hydraulic uh, Press and Cody's Labs. They're apparently in the audience today. Thanks for joining us, guys. Um, Juicy asks, what is the smallest amount of time for a repeatable event in our universe that we can associate a value to? Huh. <clears throat> Probably a Planck second, uh, which for, let's see how many trillionths of a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second is. I think it's a billionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second. Very tiny amount of time. Um, <clears throat> though, don't quote me on that one. I remember one of them is a uh, Planck distance, like negative 35 meters. And I think the Planck second is like negative 45 seconds. Um, <clears throat> it's kind of hard to say what... Uh, what you can really measure in that kind of minimum time space though but the amount of time is the same amount that light will cover that distance of a uh, Planck distance in so in one Planck second light a photon would cover one Planck length of time of, of distance so um those are kind of our minimum measurements and if you've seen the episode we did uh, things which will never exist or that will never exist uh, we did talk about a little, a little bit there about these minimum things and how they are from a practical standpoint probably not all that relevant to us if we're actually doing any measurements. Um, the Amazing Skeptic asks, is a biological singularity feasible as in a biological analog to a technological singularity? I really couldn't see how that would end up happening. Uh, I wouldn't rule it out completely, but it's not really the way that would tend to work uh, in a Darwinian sense, certainly. Um, now as to... There's a really hazy line between what we mean by biological versus technological. Again, that's getting that whole natural versus artificial thing. Um, and, you know, if you've got, you can build a biological computer, for instance. You can make a brain uh, that was just a machine that ran Windows. That's possible. On the same hand, you should theoretically be able to make a computer that ran a human brain. And I don't know which of those is the biological computer more biological than the, uh, or more what we mean by natural than a human mind uploaded to a computer. Um, and so I would say not as the questions presented, there's no real analogy for that, but also that that's a very hazy line to begin with. Uh, that artificial versus natural thing is almost never going to be a good definition to be going by for how we, how we choose to look and classify things. Johnny Weno asks, how feasible is zero-point energy? It was proven that particles and their antimatter counter can spontaneously come into existence, but how can you use this phenomenon to generate usable energy? It's quite probable that you probably cannot do so at all. Um, 
you know, these are very short quantum events. Theoretically, one way you can do it using the virtual particle example of Hawking radiation is to use Hawking radiation coming off of a black hole. There you have these virtual particle pairs uh, conceptually being produced on either side of the event horizon or very close to the event horizon so that one gets sucked down when the other does not and uh, that becomes real energy at that point in time causing a loss of matter to the black hole. And so that's not exactly what most people mean by zero point energy in the sense of being this infinite power supply, but that is a direct matter to energy conversion and that's about as best as you're ever going to get. I mean, that's 100% efficient as well. Um, or more like 99% because there's other prote- other particles involved. Uh, <clears throat> Alpha Bravo Tech asks, Theoretically on a planet that is tightly locked to its star, could an advanced civilization continuously move dirt from one side of the planet to the other to move the planet closer or further away from its star? No. Um, if you're inside a spaceship or a space station and you throw yourself at the wall, you will make that wall get shoved away from you. Thus, you will seem to have caused a motion. But you're going to fly backwards when you bounce off it and then bounce the wall behind you and push it right back. Uh, if you want to move something via propulsion, via moving mass round, you have to actually shoot it out away from the planet. So alternatively, if you wanted to uh, to move the planet closer or further away from its star, you could uh, set up some kind of huge active support system to pick up a chunk of the planet and like move it to its moon. Uh, if you remember the colonizing Pluto episode where we had a tidally locked planet to a tidally locked moon, uh, Pluto and Ki- uh, Sharon are like that, um, we had that big long space elevator connecting two sides of them to each other. In a case like that, and it would seem almost insane to try to do this, you could move a huge chunk of matter down that elevator from one to the other and cause you know a very limited amount of motion along that distance. That doesn't seem like the best way to be trying to change the amount of light you're getting to a tightly locked planet, though. That would seem so much easier to just do with a mirror. Um, <laughs> all right, so um, next question, uh, Lee Tesla. Do you think we will be uplifting animals, cats, dogs, dolphins, to higher intelligence? I think you could probably make an argument that we already have in our more classic way. You know, we've been genetically engineering plants since before recorded history. Uh, cereal crop records show that they've gotten much more productive. Same for cows. I think you get like 25 gallons of milk out of a modern Jersey cow a day. That's not, you know, that's not how they were originally, we assume. Um, <clears throat> don't quote me on that figure for milk production, though. Um, <clears throat> let's see. But uh, in that sort of way, we have already been doing cats and dogs probably for higher intelligence. Um, And I think that you would definitely have a market for smarter cats or dogs. Uh, Whether I don't think you want them human smart, though. You know, one of the nice things about pets is that they are not people. (laughs) Don't actually have to uh, worry about them talking back to you or wanting to change things around that much. Uh, Thank you, Marv Johnson. If we could produce negative mass, uh, what would the implications for society and technology be? The biggest one would be that that opens the door to doing both the Alcubierre warp drive as well as your classic wormhole. Um, You cannot do either of those without negative mass, although you could arguably do it with negative energy. Um, Although again, mass equals mc squared. Mass is energy and vice versa. Um, So... If you have the one, you would have the other, presumably. So if we could get negative mass, and we've never gotten a particle of this in the lab, then you should be able to do something like a warp drive or a warp more. And those would be the two most obvious things. But on top of that, it would probably open up the idea of doing something like hammer space. Uh, if you've seen the old Looney Tunes cartoons where they like pull an anvil out of thin air, 
That's Hamlet space. Little pocket dimensions akin to the TARDIS from Doctor Who. So a closet that uh, you could open up the door to uh, that either had a wormhole connecting to a warehouse, so a very nice closet, um, <clears throat> or one where it just was a much bigger pocket of space. <clears throat> Again, excuse me, by the way, a bit uh, stuffed up today. Uh, Alexander asks, what would be the economic incentive to colonize Mars? There isn't any. Uh, there, I mean, same as going to the moon, there would be a lot of side effects. You know, we, we have benefited from going to the moon, uh, you know, not just with things like the invention of Tang. Um, if we made trips to the Mars, we'd learn so much more about space travel, about how to keep, you know, um, closed, small closed systems in place uh, uh, in terms of ecology that I suspect it would pay off in dividends. But Mars doesn't have anything Earth has except for less gravity. Um, and there are so many other things in the solar system that have a delta V less than the surface of Mars back to Earth or Earth orbit. Um, you know, going to the moon is a better choice than Mars because the moon has so much less gravity and uh, is so much closer to home. Same, the asteroid belt is much more appealing. And even for terraforming, as we saw in uh, Winter on Venus, it's it's arguably easier and better to be colonizing Venus, scorching out place that it is, than it is to try to do Mars. Now, in terms of why we would want to go there, there are tons of reasons. Not everything has to be economic-based, and then you could probably make it economically viable or even profitable, but it isn't the most appealing place to go. doesn't mean I want to get colonized. We clearly want to do that at some point in time. It's a fixation we have. And um, when, you, when you are colonizing... You know, you start with the fertile river delta before you start colonizing all the other places first around it, but those places do eventually get colonized. Simon Peterson asks, how long does it take you to resource the information and put it in a video form? Uh, you know, probably about half the episodes on this channel uh, begin as a brainstorm where we just talk about it uh, amongst the crew for a couple hours and come up with ideas and thoughts and sometimes we'll link articles somebody remember seeing. Others, uh, I just start writing because it's an interesting topic I already know a lot about. So in that context, uh, you know, a few decades of research. Uh, in other contexts, it could be as little as now or sometimes a couple of weeks. It just varies on the topic. Uh, I tend to write about topics I already know pretty well. Uh, there's always something new in the episodes in terms of thought that emerges while I'm writing. But typically speaking, there's not a really long research period on a lot of these episodes. Um Joshua Moore says, nice tie, by the way. Thank you. This is my pie tie. I'm fond of it. Uh, Igor Briskin asks, please explain quantum entanglement and its effects on FTL communication. Uh, we did an episode on that way back um, in the FTL series, which, because it's one of our early episodes, I don't usually recommend to folks because the, the video and audio quality is much lower, but we do go through that in detail there. Uh, short form, quantum entanglement cannot be used for FTL communication. There may be some other things similar to that we might somehow use for uh, FTL communication, but no aspect of quantum entanglement uh, allows or has ever allowed or ever thought to been allow FTL communication. Somebody came up with that at some point in time in sci-fi and it just caught on. It's not real. <laughs> you cannot use quantum entanglement under any known theory to produce a fast-like communication. Um, the analogy I use is it allows you to know what the state of one of the entanglement particles is that you're not observing. If I write you a note that says, I've written two notes. On each of these notes, there is a one or a zero. If yours contains a one, the other contains a zero. If yours contains a zero, the other contains a one. And I mail that off. And I mail one of those, I mail it to, uh, you know, Beetlejuice. And then I mail it to another one 
uh, 20,000 light years away at the center of the galaxy. And there's now 20,000 light years between the two of those. And when somebody opens that up, they say, oh, look, I got a one. And they know the other one has a zero on it. And they know that instantly, even though it's 20,000 light years away. That's not FTL communication, though. And that's what quantum entanglement does. You know what that other particle is. But it's random. You can't encode a message into that. Just that one bit of information, up or down. And which one it is, is random in the case of quantum. With a letter, we know it's a one or a zero when we sent it. When you're dealing with a quantum case, the person who wrote that note, one or zero, doesn't know which one he sent to each person. Only the person opening it knows that it was a one and the other is a zero, or vice versa. No one has come up with a way to send information fast and light with quantum entanglement. That may change one day, but not this time. Uh, Cthulhu Fadagan asks, for your videos, will you still do other videos that didn't win later, or will the topics never be explored? <clears throat> when we do the polls, um, I usually end up doing the runner-up, because the, the, usually, not always the runner-up, usually one of the runner-ups up at least, though. Usually there's a topic or two that really grabs my attention, and I decide I want to do that topic, but uh, even the number one isn't always guaranteed to win. Like, sometimes I look at the who won that poll and say, I don't think I can do that video. It hasn't come up yet, but there have been a few where I was tempted, and I'm sure one day it will happen. Uh, but the best way to get a poll that didn't, a topic on there that did not win a poll is to just resubmit it and see if it runs better. Like, right now, we harvest a little over half the topics from our Facebook group. We'll do a poll there. And the reason I like to do that is there's a good size audience there, and they can add their own ideas to that poll. Can't do that on YouTube, and the only way we can do it on Patreon is to have a thread where it just adds their topics in. I pull those out manually and stick them in a poll. The downside, though, is that those earliest topics people add tend to cluster up in the top five that actually get shown on the screen without hitting the See More button. And so usually, uh, out of that first 10 topics people suggest, if there's 80 on the poll, uh, at least two or three of them will be from those first ten topics, and usually all five. Um, one second. Thank you, Church Nexus. Have you heard about the Civil Ship novel? It's really good from... I can't see who that's written by. S.H. Juca? Uh, I've actually never heard of that, and I'll have to look it up now. But uh, uh, Cool as Cats, uh, thank you very much. Um... Hi from California on my cell phone. Love you, Isaac Arthur, and love you all the fans. Uh, and that's from Cool as Cats, who I remember from previously having sent us some funds. Thank you very much. Victor Vunyan asks, where do you think spacefaring civilizations would have find their borders? Example, edge of the solar system, light and space casing mini systems, planet orbits, etc. And that's going to depend an awful lot on um, kind of the nature of the economy in those systems. I think if you actually had we you know something approaching an actual interstellar government that was coding multiple systems in a fairly fairly non-loose way something we actually qualify as a government rather than like a loose league of folks who have trade treaties then they probably would define those borders as the whole system but i suspect that you wouldn't even see um single solar system governments outside of early colonial days remember a fully developed system one that's actually got stuff in the Oort cloud or the kuiper belt or place like that to be able to say hey this is our territory and a big precedent for territory is always, are you actually occupying it? The Old West Folly Agreement, if I remember, was, was, were you farming on it? But uh, the idea for colonization is you can't claim it's yours if you're not actively using it in a real fashion. So the only way you're going to be using up an entire solar system to be able to claim it as your territory is either because there's just very few people there yet, or because you're actually always using it all, which is implying you're closing in on being a Kardashev II civilization. And that's going to be a billion, billion people in general, or more. 
you know, and uh, even a, a very lightly populated one that was more like what we think of the population density set up from uh, Slavia in the uh, Caves of Steel Elijah Bailey series by Isaac Asimov, which is a very good read, by the way, uh, where they had like 20,000 people on a planet and a, like a million robots. Um, even a setup like that, you're still talking about a million billion people uh, or more, and uh, probably more recently like 10 billion billion people. Trying to imagine that as a single unified government with no, I mean, I don't think it would work out very well. I think it mostly has something like a UN setup where it's it's other governments that are loosely aligned for defense. So I don't think you'd have too many interstellar borders like that just because I don't think you'd have very many unified systems. I'm going to be just wrong about that entirely. It's an opinion, but trying to have a government of, you know, a billion, billion people where you need a, you know, a Senate the size of a city just to have one person representing a trillion people um, as their congressman or senator, that seems a very iffy setup. Um, <clears throat> Alexander, Pod- I'm going to mess up that last name, Poydotikov? Yes, how can you rotate a tidally locked planet? Um, it's a little tricky to actually get... It, it, there's kind of, I think it'd be a little bit of what you might call friction on it. You know, when you first start tilting an object around, it takes a little bit of effort, effort to get it going. But once you actually start spinning, <clears throat> it's the same as changing the angular momentum on any other object. You need to be doing it fast enough that it's not going to drain that away. And if it's tightly locked, it's tightly locked for a reason. It probably got uh, its momentum sucked away over the course of several million years or less, maybe a billion tops. So you need to be adding momentum faster than it was going to drain away in that setup. Um, that said, uh, if you plan to spin that thing up anything like a few thousand or even a million years, odds are you, you won't have a problem with that. You're just adding angular momentum. I would say probably the easiest way would be to put something like a gigantic windmill around the planet with giant, uh, you know, meals you could bounce a laser off of and just kind of spin it that way. But there's a number of ways you could do it. You could also do a gravity assist by bringing something else like a moon into it. Uh, let's talk about prepping ass. What our next filter? What's our next filter? How should we prepare? I'm assuming that's a reference to the Fermi Paradox, and um, there we have the filters, the things that you have to jump through in order to become an interstellar civilization, and the late filters, as we discussed in that episode uh, last month, um, are those that are still ahead of us. And say, to to be an answer to the Fermi Paradox solution, it has to end in a civilization that we can see, which means it needs to be interstellar and big. Um, otherwise it could be, you know, halfway across the galaxy. We just don't ever see them because they weren't expanding. So yeah, they have to be able to stay alive. They have to be able to actually get out in space and colonize it. And they have to want to be able to do that. Um, and, uh, the staying alive thing is obviously always right on the first step. We could wipe ourselves out tomorrow, for instance, but it remains a problem until you're actually interstellar anyway. So in a way, the next big filter really is to how to actually colonize other planets and how to actually send a spaceship uh, on a 40-year voyage to another solar system or a 400-year voyage, however long it takes. Uh, we got time for a couple more questions before we go to the break. Uh, Cabezio de Tomo asks, could you do a video on medical science futurism, like about the use of graphene, etc.? You know, the thing is, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a biologist. We do sometimes cover those topics here, but I... I do tend not to focus on it too much uh, because, it's, again, it's not my wheelhouse. We do have an episode coming up on DNA manipulation of living beings that I just finished uh, recording a few days ago. That will come out in early March, I think. And uh, that will be talking about some of that. But for the most part, stick to our areas. And I'm not a, I'm not a doctor or a biologist. 
Vashidi Ten asks, does Venus have any mineral resources? Oh yeah. Um, its surface layer is not the same as Earth's uh, and has some interesting geology to it in general, but by and large, the plants in the solar system all have the same basic makeup. So all of them have mineral resources, much like Earth does. What's in the upper crust is going to vary a good deal. Obviously, Venus has to have that set up based on having a very hot surface area, but it should have a very similar mineralization in, in many areas. All right, we're going to go ahead and go to a quick break. I'll see you in a few minutes. So we're going to take a quick break so everyone, myself included, can grab a drink and a snack, and we'll do a few updates and announcements while we're taking this pause. It's also a great chance to get some questions in for the second half of our show today. First up, you've probably noticed we've had some extra episodes of late, mostly in our Alien Civilization series, and if you're curious, I'm planning to try to make sure we have at least 5 episodes each month from this point on, plus our live stream, as opposed to our usual 4 a month, or 5 a month if it happens to have 5 Thursdays in it. In general, that extra episode or episodes will be coming out first on Nebula, our streaming service, as an early release, then come out on YouTube and our other locations like SoundCloud and iTunes a couple months later. Most of our content on Nebula will be early releases, but we also have some Nebula exclusives such as our new Coexistence with Alien series, which are not intended to be broadcast on YouTube for the foreseeable future, same as our audio-only content that's exclusive to SoundCloud and iTunes. Our regular Thursday episodes will, of course, continue to premiere on YouTube, The bonus episodes from earlier this year were normally done on short notice if the mood took me and I had some free time, and the entire Nebula project is essentially an experiment, though one doing very well, and we had a surge in episode production to help that out and to make sure there was some content made just for it so folks didn't feel like it was just for early releases. At the same time, it was important to me that none of that came at the expense of quantity or quality of our regular weekly show and it took me a few months of using it to figure out how best to do that, at least for now. Speaking of quantity and quality, I want to take a quick moment to thank our editing and graphics volunteers on the show, those editors have been instrumental in permitting me to increase episode output, and in my opinion quality has improved a lot thanks to them too, and video quality even more so thanks to the folks that volunteer time animating for the show. We mostly use stock footage but many of the things we discuss have few quality images or animations showing them, and often none at all, and there's many topics we haven't been able to do episodes for just because I felt they needed visuals but none existed, and some of those have gotten done the last couple years because of those animators volunteering their time, and they don't get thanked enough, especially as analytics show only about half the audience sticks around for the credit roll at the end of the episodes. If you're interested in volunteering your time, incidentally, and have some experience with graphics and animation, I'm always grateful for help, and especially with that. And I occasionally get messaged by phone. So we will take a break for. Okay, I accidentally played the wrong break there, so we'll have an extra break in about about uh, twenty minutes. See if we can make it the whole hour after all. <laughs> all right. Uh, there's a link inside the software I use for this, where I have to connect the videos to where I click to go to the breaks. And apparently, I forgot to update that one this month. Okay, where do we leave off? Uh, Alexander Padyachev asks, "When will we get a practical fusion reactor for power generation?" 20 years from now. (laughs) Uh, You know, the problem with fusion technology isn't that it's always the technology of 20 years from now, uh, and always will be, but rather that there were some early optimistic guesses. When we first figured out fission, it took us very little time to go from, oh, that's how this works, to generating power with it. 
And so when we first got the H-bomb working and figured out fusion, we thought it was going to be same thing, another generation or so for was in mainline use. So you had some announcements in 20 years we'll have fusion. And then there were a couple of, uh, I'd say maybe slightly reckless uh, pronunciations by this or that individual in the time that followed. But uh, after that initial realization that it was far more complicated, no one's been out there saying any minute now in a responsible fashion representing the consensus of physicists. I would say, though, that if you asked most physicists today, uh, well, I think most of them would still hedge their bets with a, I don't know, one of these days. But uh, I think a lot of them would not react too skeptically to 20 years. Uh, I'd say that I do not think that we will actually have it in 20 years, though, unless someone makes a really big paradigm shift, because critically, it takes a long time to build the test reactors. So, And, and that's one of the biggest things slowing us down. We build one of these things, the multi-billion dollar project. We run some experiments on it, we collect some data, and then we have to spend five or six years going through that data, designing a new experiment or reactor, building that after we get funding, and that's what takes all the time. You know, It can take a generation just to do the next step. Not because the next step is super hard, but because building the device for it and getting the funding for it is super hard. Um, <clears throat> Tim O'Brien asks, is Beetlejuice going supernova? If not, what do you think is happening? Um, <clears throat> we've never actually gotten to see a star close enough to us in a long and protracted sense to be able to see what the what the real surface, surface looks like when it's getting ready to go. So we don't know. It should be one that does go supernova, if I remember the mass right. Um, but... Uh, uh, or at least would certainly go Nova, but well, sorry, it wouldn't necessarily go Nova. Um, but because that's something white dwarfs do, uh, it could just be regular fluctuations with that. It could be observational errors. It could be that it is about to go supernova, and uh, it's no threat to us. Incidentally, Beetlejuice is far too far away to uh, do anything to us. It'd be quite a sight to see, though. Um, <clears throat> Belshazzar asks, "What do you think of Kurzgesagt's stellar engine video? Does it seem like a good idea?" Um, I, if I remember right, they did talk about some things we discussed there in terms of the Shikata thruster, and I was very glad to see that getting discussed more, because uh, I think prior to that video, kind of like with our Skyhooks one, when they did a look at that uh, not too long back, the idea really hadn't been in, in sort of mainstream thought, and uh, so I'm very glad to see that movie on there, because it's a cool idea, obviously. We did an episode on it some years back. Um, I can't remember what the name of the one they came up with was, but ironically it was one we'd, uh, that got a paper done about the same time we did the Fleet of Stars video. Uh, Captain Caption Thruster. I cannot remember, I'm afraid, what that was called. Uh, but that looked like a very interesting design. Uh, I haven't had a chance to actually sit down and see how that would fail to just, you know, doing the ones we suggest, like for stall lifting, which is a very intensive process. But the problem with the Shikata Thruster is that it produces a very slow Delta V. One thing I do remember in the video that uh, didn't seem quite right, though, was, uh, and it's something that comes up a lot of times with um, with Shikata Thrusters or other ways of moving stars, is say, if a star is about to go supernova, you can move your own star away from it. No. I mean, you can do this, obviously, but you've got a region of maybe 100 light years around a star going supernova of systems that are threatened. That can contain 10,000 inhabited systems. Alternatively, when you're building a Chicago thruster, the fastest Chicago thrusters are around the very big stars because they produce far more light per unit of mass than a, like a red dwarf or a yellow dwarf does. So the fastest way to move one of those stars is to move the big star, and that way you only have to move one. So if you have a threat of a supernova, you don't move your planet away from it, you move the star that's going to go supernova away, because it's going to be able to get accelerated out of the area much faster, and it's removing it from play for not just your system, but hundreds and thousands of others. So a minor, minor point there, of course, is just that you would want to move the star that's dangerous first. 
Although I think in a case like that, if you're trying to move it, you instead try to stall lift it on instead to lighten the mass load so that it was boning slower into a just did not go supernova. Um, one second. <clears throat> Kevin Cito asks, are there any ways we can beat the laws of thermodynamics during the end of time? Ah, that'll be a spoiler one. So we have an episode coming up, how to postpone the heat death of the universe. I believe that's in early or mid-February. So we will look at that there, and I will save that for that. Uh, thank you, Brother Malachi. Any suggestions for people that want to do fiction, either RPG or fanfic, official fiction in the Battletech universe? It is one of the harder science fiction genres with military and political themes. I was a very big fan of the MechWarrior video game for Super Nintendo, and uh, I think I played up to MechWarrior 3. Um, and of course, I was a very big fan of the series of novels that they had for that. And um, I have to admit, I'm, I'm very fond of the universe. I don't know if I'd actually describe it as hard sci-fi. It is still space opera. It still has um, quite a few hand waves uh, in there. But uh, I would say, as to how to actually write, write fiction, I mean, you can write fan fiction for any series, but I don't know how you'd actually go about It's obviously copyrighted material. I do not know how they find authors for um, those shared or extended universes, but uh, probably write one of those fellows. And I, I think... The only one who's coming to mind right now is Michael Stackpole. I don't think he writes for it anymore, um, but uh, he, he'd, he'd presumably know. Um, pick one or two of the authors who are writing for it, send them a note, and ask them, how do you how do you submit entries to write a book would be my best guess. Um, and uh, I asked to write things along those lines for fiction that's meant to be harder like that, so that's meant to be more that space opera but with realism. Uh, kind of like what we see in the Yano Harrington universe by David Weber, for instance. Um, Sanderson's Laws of Magic, Brandon Sanderson's Laws of Magic, apply just as well to uh, to science fiction concepts, too. Um, super technology should not be introduced casually. You really need to think about the consequences of some new super technology. And uh, you shouldn't be thinking of it as an advantage. You should always try to be looking for limitations. You write to the limitations of this new ability, not the uh, not the cool abilities. Otherwise, it can turn into a deus ex machina on that tends to ruin books uh thank you again coolest cats um artificial intelligence the next step in our evolution or forever terminator one uh public opinion i still not see that new terminator movie yet i know that i didn't even know when it came out until i was looking at movies coming out into seeing the theater and uh it apparently been out for like two months i didn't heard about it. Uh, the new terminator film uh, public opinion will influence both the development and its experience when it becomes sentient. Should we start efforts now to influence the general population positively towards something that is a dice toss? No. The last thing we want to do where AI is concerned is do anything to either whitewash it or uh, turn it into a boogeyman. What we want, uh, we've had this with other technologies. Either it's, it's a little bit dangerous and we try to make it sound much safer than it is, or it's a little bit dangerous and people try to make it the most evil thing ever and terrifying. What we always want to focus on is realistic truth. You know, that's that's the most ethical scenario and I think also the best one long term. Uh, AI is very dangerous. Human level AI is very, very dangerous. I do not know that I would encourage people to look into be researching uh, human level artificial intelligence. Um at least not until we've had a lot more experience with artificial intelligence at a much simpler level, like insect level or very tiny mammal. And for almost everything we need it for, um, you can either use people, after all you've got people, they need something to do, or you can use something that's actually fairly dumb. You don't actually need to be that small to do most tasks, especially if that's the only task that you do. Uh, uh, we'll take one more question, then we'll go to our actual real break. Uh, well, we'll take two more questions to go to that. Um, 
Rashida Teen asks, are antimatter power plants feasible? Oh yeah, uh, antimatter is the easiest reactor to ever design, except for the storage part. If you want to generate power with antimatter, all you need to do is uh, is take some antimatter and dump it into water, and then just release the steam, you know? <laughs> um, antimatter turns into energy the moment it touches regular matter, and uh, but it's, that's the whole problem with storing it. Making it's another story too, there are no deposits of antimatter lying around that we're aware of. Um, and then you have to store it, and again it blows up if it comes into contact with normal matter, and it blows up a lot. This coffee cup right here, where it made of antimatter and I dropped it on the floor, uh, would explode with a force sufficient to cause a cradle about the size of my county, which is the largest county in Ohio, and would probably kill everybody inside the tri-state region. So something you store very carefully. <laughs> Andres Liga asks, will we have utility fogs? Okay, a utility fog is um, <clears throat> a term from, uh, I believe it's originally from um, Orion's Arm, the uh, shared uh, setting for hard science fiction that we occasionally reference. Um, possibly not, though. Uh, it's only popular over there. A similar concept is what we call smart matter. And this is tiny little machines, little nanobots. They'll kind of hover all around you or with you or you carry them around and your utility belt doesn't matter. And they can rapidly turn into any device you might want to have. Potentially very complicated things. Very simplistic ones, what we might call a, a microtech utility fog, would be akin to using the Terminator example, the um, the Terminator from Terminator 2, uh, the T-1000, that uh, shape-shifting one done by that actor whose name I can't remember, but he also played the corner on Stargate Atlantis, Patrick O'Neill. Um, and then a uh, another more sophisticated version of that that was actually able to make machines, we'd actually see that in the last Terminator movie, uh, Genesis, where they turn, uh, spoilers, John O'Connor into a basically a robot made of tiny little robots, and I thought that was pretty neat. Um, more sophisticated utility fogs might be something that was at the neo-atomic level that could assemble into any machine you'd want very, very quickly. Now, if you've seen our Santa Claus machine episode, uh, where we talked about some of the limitations of 3D printing and replication, I, I think the you, utility file could be very useful stuff, but there are going to be some real limitations. It's not going to be able to just turn into anything in a quarter of a second or something like that. So, and last question before we go to what we'll call break two. Adam Nicholas, thank you very much. How do you envision cooperation between such a large number of people, corporations, and governments required to build megastructures such as orbital rings, shell walls, etc.? and terraform planets. You don't really need that much cooperation to build to terraform a planet, you just need to have the resources on hand, and it's all about how long you want to take there. Again, using the uh, utility fog example, if you have self-fabricating machines, you don't need cooperation at all, you just need to have control of that planet to do the terraforming. If you bought that planet from whoever you'd buy plants from, which usually implies some large government that's cooperating, um, you might just drop a vial of uh, liquid planet on it, and uh, you know I think the minimum we calculated was like 30 years later, because you can only do it so fast without boiling the planet, uh, you might have a completely terraformed planet. Don't expect to do it that fast, though, probably still many thousands of years. Um, and the same might apply for construction to things like uh, shell wards. You're not going to build a shell ward, uh, see the Mega Earths episode for details on those, unless you have uh, access to really good automation. And orbital ring, on the other hand, is a different type of cooperation. The orbital ring has to go on a, a, a not necessarily circular, but it has to ring around the planet, obviously. <clears throat> and there's only a few places you could do that where it would not be over, you know, a bunch of different countries. If you want an equatorial one, that's going to be a pain. You don't have to have them at the equator, though. You can cock them in angles, though that's a little bit more tricky, as we discussed in the orbital rings episode. 
but I would guess you know your first one ideally is an equatorial ring, and we have satellites go that same height all the time, so you don't necessarily need their permission to cross over another country, but it'd probably be a good idea, and they probably want to have a tether up to it. So you'd probably have one or two major governments that want to be terminuses on that, and then a few others along the way that were aligned that agreed to doing that, and you pick your path accordingly. But um, that's a different type of cooperation. It's more like building a freeway or a transnational uh, freight line. So uh, that one is much more neotech, though it doesn't necessarily require a lot of automation at all. Uh, we're going to go to our real break too, and we'll see you in a minute or two. So we will take a break for a few minutes so I can catch my breath and grab a refill for my coffee, and you may want to grab a drink and a snack yourself as we still have a half an hour to go. It's also a great time to get some more questions into our moderators to relay to me, and again, please try to keep those clear and concise, and also, try to keep the comments in the chat window polite to your fellow viewers. While we're on break, a couple announcements. We've got six episodes coming up here on YouTube in January, plus an early release on Nebula for our recent poll winner, Can the Earth Have a Trillion People? And also the debut of our fourth installment of our Nebula exclusive Coexistence with Aliens series, Alliances, which we'll wrap that series up for now. Generally we'll be using Nebula for early releases of bonus episodes that will come to YouTube a month or two later, but I did want some content that was just exclusive to Nebula. And of course there's a ton of other exclusive and early release content there from our sister channels that teamed up with us to make that educational streaming service. You can join that directly or get it as a free bonus if you sign up for CuriosityStream using the link in the video description. We'll generally be aiming for 5 episodes every month in 2020 along with a live stream and occasional extra videos as moods take me, as opposed to just the regular 4 sometimes 5 episodes we do on Thursdays. I've also decided I'm rather partial to doing topic polls these last few months, so I expect that to be a more regular feature we do once or twice a month, rather than more sporadically as we did in the past. YouTube doesn't have a feature for letting viewers add topics, so we've been harvesting those off of Patreon and Facebook and taking the top 5 most popular topics to poll over here, at least the top 5 I feel more comfortable doing. For newer viewers, we stay away from topics like politics, so when those end up in the polls I bypass them, and the same does apply to the Q&A too. I tend to feel everybody already has their own opinions on such topics anyway, so won't tend to address such topics unless I feel I can add something new and meaningful and reasonably neutral on it like how one might go about running an electoral system with light lag, and what systems might tend to be more favored within such constraints, and not which is better or more ethical. As a last note, I did want to thank everyone for their recent well wishes when Sarah and I announced we were engaged this month. Amusingly, as we're both fairly private people, it was the first most heard we were even dating, including a lot of our friends, as we've known each other for over a decade. Again, we're fairly private folks so I'll leave it at that, and like myself she's a public figure as the elected representative to the Ohio Board of Education for our district of around a million folks where she's sold to the voters' pleasure for about 7 years now, ever since first getting elected at age 23. We'll be getting married this April, and for those who asked, no I don't expect us to miss any of the regular Thursday episodes. We switched to weekly Thursdays 4 years ago, and haven't missed one since then, and I don't plan on breaking my 200 episode streak anytime soon. Of course I will be taking off time for a honeymoon, but the episodes get made weeks in advance, so the 10 or 20 minutes needed to air one on a given day makes it fairly easy to keep that streak. Anyway, thanks again for all the well wishes, and let's get back to the show. 
Okay, and we're back. We'll go for about another 15 minutes and call it a day. Uh, Victor Running asks, for interstellar colonizing fleets, do you see lots of highly specialized ships, or each ship has everything it needs to make a colony in case of ship losses? Um, to be honest, I think you'd actually end up with the generation governor ship methods we looked at in uh, Guardian the Galaxy, or Galactic Governors. You'd probably have a fleet um, <clears throat> that had a lot of ships in it that uh, you know overlapped in purpose. That could split off, or you know, they could add more ships as they went on, so they'd go off in different fleets. I think you'd see more like an armada, because when you get to a system, you're gonna want to have more than one ship. You're gonna spread out to a lot of different asteroids and moons to try to get the resources you need at the easiest way you can get them. Set up little bases there, or set up your orbital economy, your your interplanetary economy, and then move on to terraforming a planet if that's if that's something you're planning to do. And then that that fleet there will presumably pause for as little time as possible and 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 head off. So. Um, <clears throat> so I do think, yeah, you probably would see specialized ships, but a lot of things that were able to do the same function, same as you have specialized cities, you know, they tend to have a factory for this or so forth. They get known for certain things because the biggest is, while it's nice to have it for redundancy, if you've got the kind of automation, you can replace them if you need to. If some ship goes down that has a core feature that's backed up as it were, but you know, you're going to want to have an individual identity in these communities because they're going to be working together for a long time. So I think even if it was one big ship, you'd have an individual part of the ship that handles certain things. They're going to develop an identity. And I think those ships would too. So they would probably tend to want to specialize. I think that's just all nature is we tend to specialize for multiple ships. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Bionic Pun asks, are you going to do an episode focusing on future personal conveyances vehicles like Skytran, LJ-powered cars, etc.? I didn't have one planned, but that actually sounds like a really cool idea right now. So it might be fun to look and see what the future would be for these kind of vehicles. Um, Self-driving cars, too, would be a nice one to look at. So, uh, by the way, thank you, everyone, for the congratulations. Um, but, yeah, I think an episode on that does sound kind of tempting. If I remember it when the live stream is over, it might become an episode. So uh, we will be having a poll again on the uh, on the on YouTube here probably about two weeks because we're running one on Patreon and we'll – take the runners up from each of those sequence of polls and put them over here too. So um, usually whichever one comes in number one on either Facebook or Patreon, when I pull there, I just go ahead and do that one. And I take the top five or so remaining uh, and put them up as a poll. And we take that number one and do that one too. Um, and if we ever find a way to take direct suggestions from folks we, we on YouTube, we'll do that too. But for right now, if you want to get involved in those, we usually do at least one on a month on Facebook, and you, anybody can join that, of course. It's a great place for discussion too. I do like the YouTube comment section or the chat like this, but the nice thing about the Facebook group is that you can post your own topics, get a lot of in feedback interaction. That doesn't happen as well with the YouTube comments. So um, I think there's a link to that in the description for this, but if not, there is one on every video. Most of our uh, social media is actually linked on in the description of all the videos. Um, let's see. GT Plus Racing asks, question, what technology do you think we are likely to master first that could lead us into being a post-scarcity civilization? Automation. Um, the better you are at automating things, and we're not talking really sophisticated AI here, um, you know, things not much more advanced than a Roomba, things that could... Uh, pick the berries off a bush, for instance, or could actually do a lot of the grunt work that uh, right now is not highly skilled labor but still needs a human. That would be the one I think would be most likely a kick us into a post-scarcity civilization with the caveat that you can't really be post-scarcity unless you have a sustainable power supply. And we have that option uh, via solar, not ground-based solar, which would be better if we actually had good, good batteries. And uh, so, for instance, if we had much cheaper solar panels and really good cheap batteries... 
uh, then that could be post-scarcity right there. But probably the other one for power supply, obviously Fusion's great, but uh, I think I would put my money on power satellites and uh, see that episode, power satellites, but uh, probably that one because that gives us that infinite supply of power that doesn't take up any of our, our, our living area. Plus gives us some options for like weather control or solar shading or solar amplification. <clears throat> Uh, Pedro Ocasio asks, are you going to live stream, live stream Cyberpunk 2077 when it comes out? No. I, I know that's a video game only because people have asked me about it, but uh, I, I, I don't have a chance to play video games too often anymore and tend to play stuff that's about 10 years out of date. So I think I was playing uh, Dawn of War Soulstorm last night, and my other big one tends to be Sid Meier's Railroads from like 2003. So I'm not as up to date as I would like to be on video games, uh, and I almost never play them when they first come out. Um... Uh, <clears throat> Albert Jacksonson asks, question, will people become non-existent? Well, that seems to be a fairly common assumption I've tossed around in talks of the future of humanity. I've seen tossed around. And if so, what effects will it have on that society? Paperless society was all the rage in the early 90s in terms of things we thought were going to happen one of these days. Um, I think we actually produced more paper than we used to at that time. Uh, I mean, we obviously do a lot of stuff on screens, but... Um, a whole document you can easily just hand someone is likely to be the normal until someone creates a, a level of Bluetooth technology that's and and um, <clears throat> or its equivalent and a level of uh, small screens similar to paper where you really could just hand someone a document like that and they would just transfer their screen or you could just have them so cheap you didn't mind handing them that screen. So until then, having something that's cheap print out to hand people, you know, that's probably going to be more than norm. Um, the other way that could end up getting replaced is if we did have things like virtual glasses or eye augmentation where you could just throw something up on somebody's uh, visual window, as it were, and that might see an end of paper too. But even then, not an end, you know, I think it would just be a decrease. <clears throat> as to hold records, I know people like to say it's nice to have a printout of stuff in case the apocalypse happens, but an optical disc, like a CD or DVD drive, is actually way more resilient uh, to time, way or tail, fire, etc. than a piece of paper is. Um, <clears throat> you would actually be better off uh, you know, doing one of those on one side and on the other side, showing a blueprint of how to create a device to read those than storing your data that way um, in case you're worried about technological losses. Okay. <clears throat> Ashikari Singh asks, question, will you do a dedicated episode on hydrogen fuel cells? I mean, I would like to say no on things like that, but I'd have to to do an episode. It doesn't have to just be technology of the future. Uh, it has to be something where it really feels like there's something fun to discuss. And off the top of my head, hydrogen fuel cells don't really... Same reason we have done an episode on fission, for instance. I think fission's amazing. I think hydrogen fuel cells are amazing. Uh, I haven't found anything about those topics I particularly want to talk about, other than like in the nuclear option. Uh, we did the video of nuclear option. <clears throat> Dave Rodini asks... Which do you think we would get first? The international cooperation for orbital rings or the technology for space elevators? <coughs> Neither. Um, <coughs> orbital rings are not sophisticated technology, nor is getting cooperation to build those all that tricky. You know, if it's if, if you're a small country, having an orbital ring pass over you that you're tethered to is such a huge economic boom if it's the first orbital ring that uh, you're almost like going to say yes. Right. And you can find a pathway around the planet that's going to include those countries that agree to say yes. Um, you build an orbital ring, again, not when you get the technology for it, but when you have the you know the throughput need to get like millions of tons of material into space a year, 
that's when you build ones. It's building a freeway, right? You don't go to Oregon, the Piney or the Oregon Trail and build a freeway along the way. You go out there uh, you know, on, on the old trail wagons and then you build a freeway generations later. Uh, as for uh, space elevators, again, it always comes down to can we find a material that's strong enough to make one. And uh, graphene only really is on paper. Trying to actually engineer graphene so that you can do it that way is not going to be easy. We might come up with something better, though. I mean, until in the 1990s, we didn't think it would be possible to do it that way. And when we talked about space elevators before that, we meant more the space tower, something that was based on compressive strength like diamond. Uh, then we suddenly find the buckyball, and then we found uh, carbon nanotubes and graphene, and it, the idea became more viable again. At the moment, though, I really wouldn't expect it to be what we'd use. A space elevator is not really ideal for moving lots of traffic to space. <clears throat> Toby Harrison asks, do you have any idea what's a idea on what dark energy or dark matter is? If you do, do you think there's any way we could use these things for our advantage? One second. <clears throat> um, I have no special clue what dark energy is or what dark matter is. We do talk about dark energy a bit and postponing the heat death of the universe uh, in February. As for dark matter, I do tend to favor it being wimps, uh, weakly interacting massive particles. But I have no special insights on that. You're not going to get from any cosmologist. As to how to use them to our advantage, <clears throat> the most obvious advantage of dark matter is that it is weakly interacting. So if you can find something that interacts with it, <clears throat> you can build yourself a scoop. And if you have something like an artificial black hole, a black hole starship, you could scoop that dark matter into the ship and uh, use it as a fuel source. A very good one. Same if you can manipulate it all. You can use it as cheap matter to put at the center of like shell wards. Uh, or feed it into black holes for power. So uh, as to dark energy, if we ever find out where it's coming from, as it were, and we could somehow tap that, there you go. Uh, <clears throat> space Y Aerospace asks, have you thought about looking at the potential for biotechnology catastrophes, gene therapy viruses that spread, DNA nanobots released in the public, etc.? Yes, and we actually do talk about those in the episode I mentioned a little bit ago, uh, DNA manipulation living uh, living beings. Um Generally, though, I do not worry about um, custom-tailored viruses. You say, well, this guy's gone and created Ebola or Super Ebola. It can kill everybody. For somebody to do that, they have to be at the top of their game and uh, of, of biotechnology. And because somebody else can combine an engineer or something that's going to kill it off. Whatever they're creating has to be better than what anybody else can create to counter it. And if you have a lone terrorist group doing that, and it's presumably a very small one, Either they got the Nobel Prize winner for that that topic um, in, in in their pocket to build this thing. Um, it's very unlikely they could spread that virus, create that virus in a way that's going to prevent anyone from killing it who has that same level of technology and the whole world's resources to draw on. So I don't tend to worry about viruses as a uh, custom-made virus as a way of, of doing massive damage to humanity. Uh, there are other biotechnology catastrophes that are possible, though. Uh, and again, it's like with gray goo, for instance, or the DNA, you know, nanobot equivalent, uh, green goo, what arguably happened to this planet several times. Um, someone's gone and made this, and it's gotten out of the lab, and it goes crazy. It can't replicate infinitely fast. There are limitations based on physics of how quickly it can do this. And somebody who's able to make that can also make the technology for little machines that go in and kill those other little gray goo machines. So I don't really worry about those uh, catastrophes running out of, of play that are based on something stupid, right? like a virus or a gray goo nanobot. Your biotechnology catastrophes are usually be something that's uh, 
done too fast so cause like ecological disaster as could arguably be the case of certain GMO crops um, or the classic Khan Union Singh from Star Trek example where you've made all these genetic supermen and they try to take over the planet okay last question for the day uh, Eric Bull asked do you think that with satellite internet becoming more available it will become harder for governments to regulate internet practices and all connection interceptions of risk I think your biggest concern about satellite internet, if it was open to everybody, is that you'd see one of two things potentially happening. One, those countries that do not want internet available to other people might demand that it be made unavailable there, and people might say yes. Uh, or two, they might shoot those satellites down. Uh, it's not hard to shoot satellites down or just threaten to do so if people didn't you know, agree to not broadcast on their country. But the third option is that... Um, <clears throat> uh, what was I going to say for that one? Third option. Oh, denial of service. If you've got a connection coming in over your area that's, you know, satellite, right? The same as if you're trying to broadcast radio into an enemy country, they can just jam the connection. You know, they're going to have supercomputers and connections they can run to just, you know, that satellite's overhead. It's saying, hey, I'm Wi-Fi. And so 100 million government computer connections established and just take up all the bandwidth. So in that regard, it would certainly be nice to say that uh, it would be harder and harder for repressive regimes to limit internet access. But uh, you know, I, I think it would be very easy for them to figure out ways to potentially do that. So um, one can hope, but again, those are some examples of how they could prevent people from doing that. Um, all right, so we already covered the episodes we're going over on the break, and so we are going to be seeing everybody again next Thursday for, uh, I believe our next episode is Time Travel, uh, which would be an interesting one, and then we'll have Conspiratorial Aliens on the 9th, and then a special episode on uh, on the Sunday after that, uh, the 12th, uh, for our previous early release of Could Technology Develop Without Fire? Um, until then, we're going to go ahead and uh, close out for the day. Thank you for all your questions, and if I missed yours, feel free to put it in the comments below, and I'll try to get to it uh, sometime to later today. Anyway, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you on Thursday. So that wraps up today's live stream Q&A. If you had a question we didn't get to, or another came to mind, feel free to put that in the comments on the video and I'll be back later this evening to answer them. You can also pop into our Facebook group, Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur, to discuss topics with like-minded individuals or any of our other forums. Thanks again for joining us today and we'll see you Thursday.